Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net. And so we learn a couple of things from this. We learn that Jesus is bigger and beyond our day-to-day circumstances. It's not that he doesn't care about them. He does care about them. He deeply cares about them, but he's got a much bigger agenda than our daily circumstances. In fact, he's the author of them, and he's got a purpose in them way beyond what we think. That's the first thing. And so we need to trust him in these times. And second, it means that Jesus can't be approached merely as a means to another end. Jesus is the master, and he will not be followed or approached on our terms. He can only be followed and approached on his terms. And we'll see in this passage that our issues, uh, our daily issues of life are important, and they're going to be hard sometimes. But the towering issue, way bigger than all of these, is Jesus himself and where we stand with him, our relationship with him, and his plan for our lives. That's way bigger than all the other things that we're dealing with in life. Jesus is the maker and the reason for all these circumstances, and he wants us to understand himself and where we stand with him. And he wants to understand his plan for us. So that's where we're going today. And if we don't share this vision, this vision for Jesus' plan for our lives, we're going to struggle to follow him. If we're following him, seeking him on our own terms, following him is going to not make sense. It's not going to be a desirable thing for us. We need to see that our circumstances are all in light of his great plan. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to look at this text together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this glorious chapter, John 6, this glorious book uh, where you reveal yourself to us as the one who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. In you is life and the light of mankind. And Lord, there is no salvation apart from you. And we want to honour you this morning, not just as a teacher, not just as a prophet, uh, not just as uh, a good moral example, but as the Son of God himself, the creator of all things, by whom and for whom all things were created. Lord, what a great... God, you are. Help us to know you this morning. Help us to glimpse who you are and may we trust you with our lives. Every circumstance, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so here's the situation. We have Jesus in his second of three years of public ministry. So he's in the middle year. He's got a lot of popularity and a big following at this point. And you can see in verse 4, it says, Uh, the Passover of the Jews was about to happen. That's the second of three times that John mentions that in his book. He mentions that earlier. And here we are in the second year. Now, Jesus is in Galilee, north of Jerusalem, around the lake, and he's having a ministry in that region. Now, we know from other parallel passages like Matthew 14 that John the Baptist has just been executed. Jesus is grieving He's sad. It seems like he's wanting to withdraw and and grieve and be away from the crowds at this time. And so we find him in verse 3, sitting on a mountainside, which is where he often goes to retreat from the crowds who are always pressing in. And he's sitting on a mountainside with his disciples. And you can see in verse 2, massive crowds are following him. Huge crowds, it says. Why are they following Jesus? They're pressing in to be healed from sicknesses. If you knew someone who could heal uh, your sickness, 
you would go to him. Uh, so huge crowds are following Jesus to, to be healed. And maybe even they're just coming to see firsthand the power of this man. They've heard stories. They've, they've seen signs. And they want to know who this person is. They want to know what he has to say. Who is he? What's he on about? And we find at this time, it's about dinner time, supper time. And Jesus is mindful as he looks at these crowds that they're hungry, they're going to need food. And he knows already what he's going to do, but you can see in verses 5 and 6, he uses this situation to test his disciple Philip, just to see what Philip might be thinking. He says this, When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked only to test him for he already had in mind what he was going to do. So Jesus is using this situation for a bigger reason than just to feed crowds. He's using it as a bigger situation than just to uh, give them what they want. There's a more pressing reality. And so Jesus performs a famous miracle. Now this miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle in the Bible that's mentioned in all four Gospels. So it's an important miracle. And John... In John's book, it's the third big sign. We'll go back to this verse that we've looked at many times before as the big theme that we're centering our study of John around. John 20, 30 to 31. And this is a bit of a summary of why John has written this book for us. We'll have a look at it. It says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So why are these signs written down for us? So that we might know who Jesus is and have eternal life. So we've seen two signs already. In John chapter 2, we've heard these preached about. Jesus turned water into wine at a wedding, didn't he? His disciples saw his glory and it said, this was the first of the signs through which Jesus revealed his glory. Then in John 4, Jesus heals an official's son. And it says, John writes, this was the second sign Jesus performed. And so here we have the third big sign that John's writing about the feeding of the 5,000. And then we have, in the rest of this passage, an extended unpacking by Jesus about what this means, this feeding. And we also have another sign, another miracle, right after it, and that's the walking on the water. And we're going to talk about that today. And we're going to leave next, till next week Jesus' unpacking of this teaching about what he means when he says, I'm the bread of life. That's next week. This week, we're going to look at these two signs together and what they mean when you look at them together. There's an important lesson about Jesus for us. Okay, so seeking Jesus on our terms. What does that look like? Uh, some friends of ours, when we left Brisbane, uh, bought us National Trust annual tickets for our family. It was a really kind present. And one of the places we've gone to many times is Lyme Park. I wonder if you've been to Lyme Park. It's brilliant, only half an hour's drive away. And uh, Cherie's a big Jane Austen fan, and so it's, she loves going there. It's, uh, you might know it from the BBC Pride and Prejudice as Mr. Darcy's Pemberley. It's his mansion. Now, when we go there, I like to m- remind my wife that it's not just men who can be superficial, that women can be superficial perhaps too. Because it strikes me, and Cherie thinks my understanding of Pride and Prejudice is shallow, but it strikes me that, that Elizabeth Bennett's opinion of Mr. Darcy changes right about the time she sees the mansion. 
So it is possible for us, well, men, we're not the only ones who can be shallow, I think, but it's possible for us to pursue things for wrong reasons, isn't it? We do it a lot, and we know it when we see it. When a man pursues a woman for beauty, we call that lust. And when a person goes to war for money, we call that person a mercenary. And when someone does a good deed for applause, we call that hypocrisy. We know it when we see it. Is it possible to pursue Jesus for wrong reasons? Why do you pursue Jesus? If you're following Jesus, why are you following Jesus? What's the reason? Is it the right reason? Is it the appropriate reason? Is it possible to follow Jesus for wrong reasons? It is. And we see that in this passage. Consider these huge crowds who are following Jesus. What are they following him for? Have a look at verse 2. It says, A great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Well, that's not a bad reason. And they see another sign here, the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus miraculously takes, miraculously takes a few loaves and fish and feeds 5,000 people. He displays a powerful sign to them and the crowds are impressed by what they see. Have a look at verses 14 and 15. How do the crowds respond to Jesus' miracle? After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they had intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. See, he goes to the mountain to get away from the crowds. But on the face of it, this seems exciting, doesn't it? These crowds want to make Jesus king. They think he's the prophet who's come into the world. They call him rabbi. They ask him promising God-related questions like in verse 28. They say, what must we do to do the works that God requires? Now think about this. This looks promising. Looks like Jesus has a megachurch movement going on. Doesn't it? If we sort of had this response in Grace Church, we'd think revival has broken out. It looks exciting. But what does Jesus think? He's not interested in this response. What's the problem? What the crowds want is a, a king to suit their ends. They want a material saviour. They want someone who's going to fill their belly and make their nation great they're not actually interested in what these signs say about Jesus. They want that, what these signs can give them. There's a big difference. So verse 26, it says this. Jesus says to them, Very truly I tell you, you're looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate your loaves and had your fill. They're interested in filling their stomachs. They're interested in making Jesus king to drive out the Romans. Now the Romans had been oppressing uh, the nation of Israel, they'd taken over, and the Jews wanted them out. They wanted freedom for their nation, and they wanted wealth and glory, and this is how they viewed the Messiah to come. They wanted a Messiah who would drive out the Romans and set up a great nation. And so at this time, we read from the history books that the Jews were primed for a Messiah, they were wanting one. And Josephus is a historian of that time, and uh, the Romans employed him to write a history of Israel. He was a Jew, but he wrote a history for the Romans about Israel. And he wrote this. They gathered around them any champion who presented himself as king, urging the destruction of the Roman commonwealth. This is what they wanted in a Messiah. They wanted a military strongman who would drive out the Romans. Someone, and they thought, surely this man who can feed 5,000 people, he's got the power to do what we want with this nation. 
But Jesus hasn't come for that reason, has he? He's come for a more important goal. And he knows what our greatest need is. He hasn't actually come to meet our wants. He's come to meet our needs. We need to understand this. He hasn't come just to sort out our day-to-day circumstances. He's come for something much bigger. What's our greatest need, would you say? It's to be reconciled with God. We are enemies of God by nature in our sin, and he's come to reconcile us to God. This is why he came. Why did he die on a cross? Not as an example, although it was an example of sacrifice, but to redeem us and give us eternal life. Have a look at verses 38 to 40. And he says, I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. My father's will is that everyone who looks to the son and believes in him shall have eternal life and I will raise them up at the last day. Jesus' desire for you isn't just to sort out your circumstances, it's to give you eternal life. It's a different and bigger agenda than just your day-to-day circumstances. And Jesus keeps pounding on this issue because he loves you. He wants better for you. And he knows that what you want often isn't what you need. He's committed to giving you what you need. And that's your eternal condition is infinitely more important than your day-to-day troubles. Have a look at this quote from A.W. Tozer. He wrote a book called Knowledge of the Holy. In 1978, he wrote this. He said, all the problems of heaven and earth though they were to confront us together and at once, would be nothing compared with the overwhelming problem of God, that he is, what he's like, and what we as moral beings must do about him. The person who comes to a right belief about God is relieved of 10,000 day-to-day problems, for he sees at once that these have to do with matters which at the most cannot concern him for very long. But even if the many burdens of time may be lifted from him, the one mighty single burden of eternity begins to press down upon him with a weight more crushing than all the troubles of the world piled upon each other. If we could see how great we need to be reconciled to God, how great Jesus is, how great and important is our relationship with him and the gospel, how glorious it is, if we could see that, then the problems that we have in this life would just reduce dramatically, wouldn't they? The good news... God, Tozer describes God as a problem. But the good news is that he has come to be our saviour and fix the problem so that we can be one with him, that we can have eternal hope. And that's why he came. So the crowds don't understand this. Their mind is on the physical. They don't understand Jesus' plan. He hasn't come to give them what they want. So what do they do? Have a look at verse 66. And we see here that many depart from him. We actually see that even many of his own followers depart from him. This isn't just the crowds, this is a lot of his disciples. Not just the 12, but the the group around. There was a larger group of followers of Jesus. And look at verse 66. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. He's not giving them what they want. Now, what about you? What kind of saviour, what kind of Jesus do you want? If you could have Jesus do anything for you, what would it be? Are you tempted to settle for a material saviour, someone who will sort out your worldly problems? Are you, are you tempted to say, Lord Jesus, I'll follow you if, on this condition, I'll follow you so long as? We can't approach Jesus that way. He wants more for us 
than a pleasant life in this world, more for us than our plans going smoothly. Maybe we would love to have him deal with our health issues or our financial problems, relational struggles, maybe our work pressures, our marital status. Maybe these things are the things we really love him to sort out most of all. But he's got a bigger agenda with your life. In fact, he's using the circumstances in your life to draw you to that bigger agenda. Now, if we struggle to follow Jesus for that reason, if we're looking for him as a material saviour, then we have a big problem because we won't get what we're looking for and his words won't mean much to us. Perhaps we're attempted to approach Jesus for some kind of fire insurance policy. I've heard people call it that. That we want salvation from hell and that's really what we want. And apart from that, we'd just rather he get out of the way of our lives and so we can do what, what we want. But we can't have Jesus that way. We need to embrace him on his terms. His terms are infinitely better, even though they might be harder. Jesus isn't concerned about our physical circumstances nearly as much as our eternal ones. And he demonstrates this clearly, that he is concerned about our physical circumstances. What did he do? He fed the crowds. He healed the sick. He is concerned about your struggles. But he's concerned about something much weightier as well, and that's our relationship with him. So we need to come to him on his terms first to be reconciled to God. First, to trust him as our saviour from sin. And then we find in him someone who wants to give us eternal life. Now, what we find when we follow Jesus, and if you've been following Jesus for any length of time, you will know this, that our problems don't disappear, do they? Our problems don't disappear, but God is using them for a greater purpose. And we'll see this in just a moment in the text. What's Jesus doing in your problems and your circumstances and your challenges? He's revealing himself. He's revealing himself. Not just truths, but himself. And that's what the disciples are about to learn. So in this boat, in the night, immediately after the feeding of the 5,000, we see something else. The disciples learn a big lesson in a boat. I wonder if you've ever learned a lesson in a boat. Uh, I'm not much of a, a, a sort of maritime nautical person, but I have learned a lesson in a boat. When I was in India for about five days in 2006, we were looking at the university ministry scene there with a pastor, and he was into wildlife, and so he took us to this bird sanctuary. And we stopped in, and I don't really remember the birds, I have to say, but I remember being terrified. Now, what happened, we were in this little wooden boat and there was me and another guy I was working with and this tour guide, this Indian tour guide rowing us around. And to my horror, uh, around this lake, which was dotted with little islands with trees on them, there were crocodiles everywhere. There were lots of crocodiles, maybe 20 big crocodiles. Now, in Australia, if you, there's only two kinds of crocodiles and the ones that look like this, the ones with the wide snout, are the kind that eat you. And so I was terrified. And here we are rowing around and I'm thinking, this isn't looking good. The worst thing about it, I took that photo in the boat, this crocodile got up and starts sliding into the water as the boat comes past. I was really scared. Now, you know, the, the only thing that stopped me from panicking was looking into the tour guide's face and seeing that he was as tranquil as can be. That was the only thing that kept me from absolutely panicking. I learned a lesson of faith that day in that little boat. Now the disciples have a big lesson to learn here. Have a look at John chapter 6 verse 16 to 20. What's this lesson they learn? When evening came, 
Jesus' disciples went down to the lake. Now this is the 12. Where they, were go- where they, were, where they got into a boat and set across for the lake of... Sorry. They set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, don't be afraid. Now, notice a few things about this. And I'm cheating here, I'm using Matthew chapter 14, which is a parallel account of this very same event. And we know that this happened immediately after the feeding of the 5,000. So Jesus sends them into a boat pretty much straight after dinner. We, we see that in Matthew 14, 22. It's only just dark when the disciples get into a boat. We can see that in verse 16 of this chapter. And so Jesus, we see that Jesus sends them. They don't decide to go. He sends them. And he sends them, interestingly, into contrary winds and rough waves. Why does he do this? He sends them into rough waves, and you know these strong fishermen, how far they get by rowing the entire night till Jesus uh, meets them just before dawn. They get three or four miles, so they pretty much get nowhere all night. They've been rowing all night, not getting anywhere. And Jesus comes to them shortly before dawn, it says in Matthew 14, 25. Why did Jesus send them on this seemingly futile venture across the lake all night, not getting anywhere? He was revealing something of himself to them, much bigger than the the problem that they experienced that night in the waves. He was doing something much bigger. He had bigger fish to fry. And so the disciples see him at the most miserable lowest time of that night toward dawn. And he comes to them and have a look at what happens here. Verse 21, when they were willing to take him into the boat, Immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. Jesus shows up and all of a sudden the problem they had is gone. The boat gets to the shore in no time, but they learn a much bigger lesson. What does Jesus reveal to the disciples about himself? He's showing them deliberately that he is the master of all these circumstances, of all these natural conditions. Actually, he's the one who creates them. He walks on the water. What does that mean about Jesus that he can walk on the water? It means that he's in control. He's the master of everything physical. And as he approaches the boat, he speaks to them. And he says in verse 20, you can, say, you can see it there, it says, it is I, don't be afraid. Now I've consulted Mike Tyndall, the Greek expert, and he's not convinced uh, about what this means. Scholars aren't sure. Some scholars suggest that he's saying I am. It's actually the same Greek words. I am, don't be afraid, which is the name God uses about himself. Some scholars suggest that. Mike Tyndall is not convinced, uh, and so therefore I'm not so sure either. But it could be that that's what Jesus is saying. But either way, the point is the same. He walks on the water. He's the creator. He's the ultimate reality. He's beyond the physical powers of this world. He's no mere material saviour. And see how the the, the important part of these, the couplet of these signs goes together. The feeding of the 5,000 and the walking on the water. Why? Because Jesus is showing by this that he doesn't just exist to meet people's needs and to fill their stomachs. He's greater than all these things. He's the creator himself. Now, you might recall another experience the disciples had in a boat where Jesus calmed a storm. 
and the winds are whipping up. Jesus is actually asleep and Jesus, they wake Jesus in fear and he calms the storm and everything's clear. And you know what it says after the storm is clear? It says, and you can see this in Mark chapter four, it says after the storm is calm, it says they were terrified. Why were they terrified? They were at once terrified about the storm, but all of a sudden they realized they were to be terrified about something much bigger than the storm. And that is this person in the boat, Jesus Christ. He's the creator. Who is this man? The wind and the waves obey. And so what's the lesson? A couple of lessons here for you and me. Firstly, when we follow Jesus, he is going to deliberately, not by accident, deliberately lead you into perplexing straits. He's going to lead you into difficult waters and opposing winds, raging storms. Why does he do this? Why is his plan to lead us into these places? We'll be tempted to ask at these times, wonder whether he's forgotten about us, wonder whether he's going to show up like the disciples perhaps were. We'll feel helpless and alone and we'll wonder what, whether he's forgotten about us. So what's he doing? He's got a powerful, loving purpose in it for you and me. Remember that Jesus' desire for you, we need to remember this in the storms that come. Jesus' desire for you isn't just to sort out your present circumstances, it's your eternal glory. It's a much bigger desire than just your life going well right now. Now, what's the difference with these disciples to everyone else? Do they really understand these things? Not really. What's the difference? There's one difference, is that is that they're going to trust him. Have a look at verses 67 to 69. The disciples don't get it. In fact, Jesus elsewhere talks about this. He talks about in the boat how they really just didn't get what Jesus did with the bread. Verses 67 to 69. You don't want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the 12. And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We've come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. You see how they trust him? That's the difference. You don't have to understand what he's doing. You might say, what's God doing in this situation? You might not get an answer for that, but you need to trust him. You need to trust that he's got your eternal joy in mind. Lord, why this illness? Why this setback? Why this futility? Why don't you bring me through this? Why this pounding that I'm experiencing? Because he's got a purpose for you greater than your circumstances he's in control of all these things he's got a bigger agenda you know the other day uh, two days ago I was in the kitchen and uh, the, the Laura my girl had a uh, she got a present from Australia from her auntie and it was a koala in an egg go figure it's a koala in an egg you put it in the water and over a couple of weeks the koala sort of expands and hatches out of the egg and you get this sort of hideous looking rubbery koala, um, gray looking thing. Anyway, I'm in the kitchen and just doing something, whatever I'm doing, and I reach over for my glass of water and I take a big swig of this horrible gray koala juice, this plastic horrible substance, made me feel sick and it was disgusting. Now, what, why did that happen? You know, th that night I felt a little bit seedy, but actually I'm really thankful I'm really thankful that I didn't get more sick. I kind of wondered whether I'd get liver, liver failure or whatever would happen. But there's a purpose in that. What's the purpose? And I think we need to be asking these questions in the little problems and the big ones. 
What's the purpose here? God is surely drawing, teaching me something about himself. And we need to learn to think that way more. I have a friend in Brisbane who's a physiotherapist. He's a good one. He's an experienced one. And over the last couple of years, he's seen less experienced physiotherapists being promoted above him. Why? Why is this happening? What's God teaching him? I, I know a man who's been for 30 years injured with a neck injury, playing with a child, and he's in extreme pain. He's been in extreme pain for 30 years. He's on the, when he gets really painful, he's on the most extreme form of pain relief that he could possibly get. And he just perseveres with this thing. He loves the Lord. What's the Lord doing in his life? I have an engineer friend who was sued for a pay issue. He, he earned the money, but now this other company is suing him for some. He's lost a lot of money for this, a lot of stress, all this legal stuff. Why is the Lord doing it? Why does he do these things in our lives? He wants to reveal something much bigger than this problem to us. By all means, ask him for bread. Ask him, as we do, give us this day our daily bread. Ask him for these problems to be dealt with, but make sure you know what his bigger agenda is. And ask the question, how might God be using these present circumstances to draw you to himself? Remember his bigger agenda. Now, I'll just have a look at a, a verse here. We're almost finished. 1 Peter 1, 6-7. Now, here it just captures beautifully, I think, this bigger agenda that Jesus has for us. It says, Now for a while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Why have these come? These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by the fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So Jesus' big goal for you is that you would have share in his glory, share in his eternal glory when Christ is revealed. That's the big goal. So he's using these circumstances to strengthen your faith. Notice that your faith is more precious than gold. There's something more precious in your life than your physical circumstances, your stuff and your health and all of these things. It's the faith that he's given you which will bring about eternal life in you. So remember that and trust him. We need to trust him. We need to come to him on his terms. That's what following him means because there's no other place to go. Now, I love the Narnia Chronicles and I'll give you one of my favorite sort of illustrations from it in the silver chair. And Jill is the main character in that story, one of them, and she meets Aslan for the first time. And she finds herself incredibly thirsty and so she heads toward this stream where she meets him. And she gets much more than she bargained for. And this is what happens. She comes to the stream and she sees this massive lion sitting next to the stream. And he says, are you not thirsty? Said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I, could I, would you mind going away while I do? Said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to, not to do anything to me if I do come? Said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls? She said, I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, 
said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I dare not come and drink then, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill. (laughs) Coming another step nearer, I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. So Jesus would have us come to him on his terms, um, not as the means to some other end, not just to meet our physical circumstances, but for him. He doesn't just give us the bread of life, and we're going to learn this more next week. He doesn't just give us the bread of life, he is the bread of life. We find that in Jesus is both our means and our end. We're going to learn more about that next week, but let's, let's pray in closing and look to him and ask him to strengthen our faith. Um, Lord Jesus, to just take a moment of quiet to reflect on the struggles and problems going on in our lives right now, the things that we'd like to have sorted out. Lord, we, uh, we pray that you would teach us to look to you in the midst of these. Lord, And may we even learn how to say, even as Paul did, um, 2 Corinthians 12, we, that he's learnt to delight in weakness and hardship, trouble, difficulty, persecution, um, so that your power might rest upon us. Lord, you bring these things into our life to teach us more about you, to reveal and to bring about a wonderful eternal purpose in our lives. May we trust you. Teach us to trust you. Forgive us for following you on our own terms so much. Lord, um, forgive us for thinking of you as something like a genie in a bottle that we can come to when we want something. Forgive us for coming that way. And when we come that way, we don't come at all. Lord, may we come to you because you are God himself, because we need you. Lord, you're you're the one who created us. Our our joy and our satisfaction is found in you. So teach us to come to you. Strengthen our faith. And as the the storms that lie ahead, surely that lie ahead, come, may we uh, rest firm in the knowledge that you love us, you're with us, and that you're working a plan for our eternal joy and glory uh, in you. We pray in your precious name. Amen. Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net.